Kia ora iti, we welcome to q and I'm Jack Tain. This morning, how would Te Pāti Māori choose to use power? Well, the only party in, and the only real opposition in Parliament because we're the only ones that aren't trialling out to be in government. And that's been effective. Then, whether it's Lake Onslow, Christchurch's stadium or Auckland Central Rail, why do so many big infrastructure projects end up over budget? And I ask one of NASA's top bosses if private space companies are actually working in the best interests of the rest of us. Elon Musk. Mm. Good guy. We'll have that interview for you shortly. But first, it's been a week of cuts for the government. The clean car upgrade programme, alcohol reform and Stuart Nash. But Prime Minister Chris Hipkins held off dropping the former police minister from Cabinet altogether. Stuart Nash declined our request for an interview, but One News political editor Jessica Much-Mackay is with us live from Wellington this morning. Kia ora, Jess. What does his decision to keep Stuart Nash in Cabinet tell us about Prime Minister Chris Hipkins' leadership? There's quite a lot we can read into that decision. I think, first of all, it shows us that he can be pretty ruthless and through the middle when he needs to be. We saw that on that Wednesday when he first initially made that decision to strip him of the police portfolios. But then I think we've seen that he really is that career politician because he went through the rules uh, with so much detail. I know behind the scenes that he consulted with several people about it, really thrashing out those ideas before making a call on it, definitely. So I think we can see that he is going to be thoughtful in these decision make, decisions that he makes, but not afraid to make those tough decisions. And it really is his big first test as Prime Minister. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Jess? Because if you look at the Cabinet manual, it is clear that Stuart Nash breached the rules in the Cabinet manual. But let's think about the ways in which he breached it. In one case, he was advocating for a doctor in his community with Immigration New Zealand. And of course, in that other case with the police commissioner, he was seeking a tougher sentence. Now, those might be errors, but is it fair to say they are politically popular errors? And I feel like this is what people have been bringing up to me over the last few days since this happened. It's not necessarily about what he said in those two instances, it's who he is when he says it. And he was a cabinet minister who was very experienced. I think the thing that really was the big one was the calling up the police commissioner and having a chat about it. That is in a different league. But you've just got to remember that that separation between ministers and uh, police is a pretty unique relationship and it really is drilled into police ministers when they first get into that job. They do have to keep that separation really intact. And Stuart Nash didn't do that. And not only did he not do it, but he talked about it and didn't realise the mistake that he was making. So I do think people at home will be saying, yeah, look, it wasn't so bad, um, him talking up and perhaps saying what some people were thinking. But don't forget, he is a minister and what he says is very different to what the average person down at the pub can say. So I think that's important to remember in this context. So Jess, from Stuart Nash's perspective, does this demotion matter? Yes. And I think perhaps from the outside, people might say, oh, well, look, he's gone back to uh, the bottom of the cabinet ranking. He still keeps his salary. He still is a minister and he still uh, will have all the perks that go with that and the salary that goes with that. But it is a, in this place, it's different. And everyone is ranked by hierarchy and those things matter. So 
Yes, it's not a huge... Uh, I mean, obviously, it's much bigger that he was stripped from that police portfolio. That was a much bigger move uh, with that perhaps more severe breaking of the rules. But that demotion does matter in this place. It's even about staff and who they want to work for, and it's about where you sit in the Cabinet table. So all those little things in a place like Parliament that's so hierarchical really does matter, and also that it's such a public thing mm. for Stuart Nash. I think uh, we've got to know him a bit, um, more over the last few days, or the public has perhaps. I think a lot of us in that place already do know him well. But I think you see that things like that would matter to him, and Chris Hipkins has chosen that punishment perhaps accordingly. We really appreciate your analysis as always. Thank you so much. That's One News political editor Jessica Much Mackay. To party Māori does things differently. The party's two MPs are absent from Parliament a lot of the time. They prioritise social media for connecting with voters and building their support base. But their work outside Parliament won't be enough by itself to realise the party's policy goals. They want a Māori Parliament. They want to entrench the Māori seats. And they want a parliamentary commissioner for tetiriti, all of which require legislative changes. Now, if the polls are to be believed, Te Party Māori could find itself with significant leverage after October's election. So what do they want? I sat down with co-leader Debbie Nārewa-Packer. From a legislative perspective, what have you actually achieved? I think um, from a legislative and policy perspective, um, we've been able to have most of what we've come up in our manifesto adopted by Labour. Um, so, for example, um, the Māori wards, uh, Matariki um, holiday, uh, the way that we've been able to affect um, and certainly put a lot of pressure on a lot of the changes that went on with Oranga Tamariki. I think if we were to um, also look at the pressure that we put in with the um, minimum income, uh, the fact that we've been able to um, push back again, which we see coming, um, Matatini aspects and brought light, I think, to a whole lot of other um, Policy that otherwise wouldn't have been adopted, Māori Health Authority, the Paiora legislation, those are all kaupapa uh, that not only started into Party Māori, but they were also um, supported and lobbied. And so, yeah, so I think that um, that's what we're meant to be doing in here, is make sure that our manifesto is strong enough that the um, government adopts it, um, especially a government that's been bereft of um, Māori transformational ideas. So Those changes you've just listed, though, all of those came from Labour? Oh, they um, landed in Labour as far as the government, but they actually started, um, if you were to go back and look at the wakapapa, um, with Te Pāti Māori. And that's no different to the fact that our longest-standing bastion for transformational change in final order um, spaces uh, Te Pāti Māori. Um, even having a history taught in um, schools. That's a kaupapa that started with Tūruru. Well, let me rephrase the question, though. Is there any law that has been passed in the last two and a half years that wouldn't have been passed if Te Pāti Māori wasn't in Parliament? I don't think they would have been passed or morphed the way that they did. What do you mean by... by well, that? I think, so, for example, when you look at some of the um, changes in the way that... So I, I guess, you know, we're a party of two. Um, could we have stopped some of the changes? I don't think, if, for example, we saw some of the um, adaptation with, uh, for Māori health budget, um, we saw the increase of um, final order, uh, even for the um, Māori COVID response. Those are things that um, we led the charge in. And so I don't think they actually would have landed um, the way they did without um, Te Pāti Māori, one, holding the government to account, um, pushing within the various select committees and be able to bring about the support. I don't, in fact... I don't know whether we would have had a Māori health response. I, I look at things like um, Rāwari's haka mm. in Parliament, uh, the scrap over neck ties, 
And some critics would say that at times Te Pāti Māori has been performative rather than um, actually affecting meaningful legislative change. Tuesday this week, for example, you tweeted, quote, first day back in the House and we're answering what we think about the government backtracking on climate change. So did you go to question time on Tuesday? No, we didn't go to question time on Tuesday, but we went to the House later that night. Did um, you go to question time on Wednesday? No, no, we didn't go. And to be honest, um, I think, and, and I, I get that we might have uh, a, a random media um, stalker wondering whether we're in the House this night or whether we're in the House this morning or whether we're in the House in questions. That's actually something we do quite often. Mm. I think the issue that um, really got um, the deflecting going on, whether we were in the House or not, mm. at 2 o'clock or at 9 o'clock the same day, is more about the fact that we're calling out um, ministers and we're calling out poor performance. Not, not think, in question time, and I think, Yeah, but you can't be in question time when you don't have a question. And I think that's what you've got to remember. We don't get a question mm. every day in question time, which is why, when back to your question, do I think that Te Pāti Māori is performative? I think Te Pāti Māori is transformative, mm. and we have to get cut through in ways that relate to Māori, no different to the pai pai. So here's my question to you. Do you remember the entrance that Te Pāti Māori made at Te Waitangi, or do you remember the party that went on before us. And I put to you, for us as Māori, they'll remember ours because we go in and we challenge and we carry Modi and we carry, I guess, the reality that as Māori, we are not going to perform in this house and do what everyone else expects. We're not going to be in the house a lot of the time. Hey, yes. what, 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 just let me ask, sorry, mm -hmm. what is your attendance record in the house? Oh gosh, you'd have to check that out with our um, leader's office, but I guess the question that we've always said is that when we have questions, we are in the house. Um, when we're um, needing to be out on the ground, when we're at Waitangi, when we're at Ratana, when we're at Matatini, I mean, I think that's the other question, is what are the other parties' attendance at Kaupapa Māori? Because we be, are a Māori party. Yeah, would, would there be any other MPs who have a worse attendance than you and Rawiri Waititi in know, Parliament I, itself, do you I think? I guess the question is, is it that you're asking um, for our people whether we are more effective in being in the House, or is it that your question is that you think that we should be in the House instead of being at Kaupapa Māori. Because here's my question. How many Māori MPs or how many MPs did you see at Tangi across the Motu? So when we're here to serve our people, are you proposing that I can only do that by being in the House at question time when I have no questions? No, I guess what I'm asking is what's the point of being in Parliament if you're not in Parliament? I think that's... I, think that's, I mean, I think the question should be really... Is when and we if are we're looking at legislative achievements... And, and saying, well, this is very hard to cleanly articulate legislative achievements over the last two and a half years, and you haven't been in Parliament a whole lot compared to some other MPs. Oh, yeah, some people might question, what is the point in even being represented? What about the fact that we've got two MPs from Te Pāti Māori that have had their members' bills pulled? Each of them has been um, been able to come back and push back about the discrimination going on in the electoral process. Mine is to, out, you know, to go and ban seabed mining. Now, that pressure has made sure that the government has agreed and supported a moratorium in the international waters. So our work that we do, and I know that this is probably really different for um, some that sort of have quite a, a clinical, linear approach to politics. Ours has got to be smarter and clever because we're only two MPs. So our members' bills have all come out 100%. Mm. We push back here in the House, we push back there, 
in Kopa for Māori, and our electorates are, are huge. They're bigger than any other MP in a general seat would have to contend with. So it's a balancing trip, and I think yeah. we do it really well. Yeah, I, I want to ask you more about that strategy, and I, I understand the point you're making. Effectively, you are saying that it's a better use of your time at the moment, even though you are members of Parliament, to be out in your electorates and looking at other opportunities to hui with Māori, to talk with your constituents. It's always and, and, and I think yeah. you've got to remember, you know, where would our people want me to be, sitting quiet in a house where we have no questions, or upstairs uh, in on precinct meeting with um, those lobbyist advocates, whānau, hapu, that don't get to see and have their kaupapa represented. So I, I, it is a balancing trip. But the question is then... That's if what we get measured on, performance by our people, and that's why we're polling so well. But this is, this is, what I, this is why I ask about with performative measures mm. rather than actually achieving legislative change. And perhaps we can come back to this point uh, later in the interview, because I think actually talking about when you pull the trigger, when you decide that actually if we're going to affect change, in this House of Representatives, then we are going to have to make some changes to the way we approach um, legislative issues. We'll get to that very shortly. I want to talk about policy. It's an election year. Polls show the number one issues for, for New Zealanders right now is the cost of living crisis. And of course, Te Party Māori wants GST scrapped on all kai. What would be the impact of that policy? Um, well, it would bring the cost of food and the cost of living um, down. And so I, I think, you know, we must be really conscious of what it is that we can do in affecting change, again, as a party of two, um, in this place. And so the policies and certainly the members' bills that we put up are about that, are about making immediate impact in whānau, whānau's lives and being able to put more kai on the table. So it's all food though, right? Yes. So junk food? We decided not to discriminate between what was and what isn't uh, because then that becomes a reason why, and we have heard this um, when we've gone lobbying for support, that becomes a reason why people won't support it. We need to be just cutting through the chase and being able to help um, ease the pain. So Coke is 15% cheaper? Uh, look, I'm, I'm not going to get into whether um, coffee or Coke, whether it should be... But that's um, the whole point know. of the policy, though, right? You have to define what is and isn't food. Yeah, but I, I think, um, Jack, what, what we have had is a culture of our people being told what is good and what is not good for them. At the moment, what they need to do is be able to afford to live. Yeah. That's it. And there's, there's no um, frills and fancies on how and who and what we decide and how we discriminate our whānau on what choices they make. Right now, we need to give them the choice to be right. able to eat. So you're not passing judgement. That's totally fine. But at some point, you have to pass judgement as to what constitutes food. So, so Coke would be food. I, look, I, I think that's the stuff that would go on further down in the detail. But the reality is... is Do you again, not have you know, detail on this policy? Oh, well, it's a central I mean, policy you know, for you, I guess the, the reality is, is that we could sit here and do a whole ingredients count and I, I hope you're well, going to use my your, time better your, than that. It's your policy. But yeah, it is, but I hope you're going to utilise my time better than that. Because surely well, it's, it's your you central see, policy for the issue that's know, the number but, one yeah, issue for New Zealand in, voters. In picking out little parts, Jack, you yourself can see how this would immediate improve, immediately improve people's lives. What's more important, that I sit here with you today and talk about every ingredient that you think could hit that list, or we focus, most importantly, on how we can impact change? I think You've what's just most important is you, you have some clarity changes. around your policy. Yeah, and I, and I think at the end of the day, we have not determined, we've been really not judgmental, because that is the problem on a lot of kaupapa Māori okay. and a lot of our whānau, that they get judged for the decisions they make. We just need to make their lives easier. Last month you laid out policy priorities, uh, and you said your absolute priority, as in the party's priority, is to commit all Māori to the Māori role by next year. What about Māori who don't want to be on the Māori role? 
then they can make the decision as we do today to not do. But at the but end of the day, we have to commit a, all Māori to the Māori Well, role. I think what we want to do is make sure that that option is there. And absolutely, um, because, you so, know... So it's an option not... Sorry, to be 100% clear here, it's it an option a, not committing... Is it David Seymour, if he doesn't want to be on the Māori role, isn't on the Māori role? <laughs> oh, I'm sure David would make his own choice. It is about making that option without having any hang-up or any... Um, belief that I can only go to general, and that's when we are enrolled. That's the only option. So yeah, and, and I guess we're optimistic and we're proactive on saying that this is the option with those who have waka papa. Go for it. Right. So it's an option. You're not actually committing, as your policy says, all Maori to the Maori role. You'll see. All our policies are extremely optimistic on the Maori world view that this is the norm, and we're not. And I think that's the problem. Yeah. Is that general has been promoted as the only and the general. You know. Option. We want to say Māori role is the option. Sure. That is the, um, that's the norm. I guess the problem with your policies at the moment is that it's hard to get certainty around some of the detail with them, which, mm. is what, which is what I'm asking about. One thing that hasn't featured in your policy that I've seen is immigration. So I wonder, what, what is, in your eyes, the role of immigration oh, in I modern Aotearoa? I think and I've always thought that we need to make sure that we support um, you know, everyone that's coming into Aotearoa in a way that we wouldn't as tangata whenua in a manaki manner. We have actually haven't enjoyed that status in a manaki manner on determining how, who, when, what. Um, and you're right. I mean, we're a party of two. We've been in Parliament for two years. Uh, we, I don't even know how we landed a manifesto for 2020. And at the moment, if you've seen our socials, we've been calling for experts um, to make sure uh, that we get that advice and we get the development of a solid manifesto and cope up with that perhaps we weren't um, active and we weren't strong at it and we need to get better at it and that's what we've called for this Okay, year so you're looking for, for you're going to work on more detail mm, around immigration. Oh, we're, we're looking to sort of do generation two of the manifesto because sure. don't forget we didn't have a team, we didn't have resource, so those I understand. are I think, all the things that I we do. In, in but I suppose as, as, a, as, a, as, a, um, as a political leader I'm interested in your principles on the matter. So is there any uh, policy when it comes to immigration that the government has in place that you would change, that immediately comes to mind? Oh, no, I, to be honest, um, Jack, that's not a portfolio I'm strong in. Um, what I do think, though, is that we have an obligation to look after um, all our manuhiri um, to be healthy. And we need to... Um, I get a little bit concerned with questions like that, where um, sexually out a group of our society mm. as if it's an inconvenience. Mm. Um, it's a privilege to be able to monarchy everyone. I think the issue here is do we have the support um, and are they able to live here without discrimination? Mm. Um, so I think that's, um, again, that's my um, values base. You have called for more funding for Te Matatini. Uh, Labor gave it a $1 million boost for the competition this year. Why didn't Te Pāti Māori increase Te Matatini funding when it was in government? Oh, gosh, I, to, to be really honest, I think the um, reality is that there are probably a whole lot of things um, the Māori Party did um, pre my time, and I, I can't um, really answer for them and their policy drive at the time. What I can answer for now is that there is about an average of 10,000 hours that each team puts in um, regionally and to actually get to the event. The multiplier effect um, from a health, cultural, economic perspective is huge for Aotearoa. And, you know, we've seen the um, comparison of other arts, but the difference with um, Te Matatini is that it's, it's cultural, it's hauora, it's a way of being able to grow mātauranga Māori and it brings about huge economic value and from a multiplier effect and from a um, tourism So aspect. what would increase, further increasing the funding change about Te Matatini? Well, it would, I don't know if you've realised how, but at the moment it's a really small team of maybe five or six. Um, so what it will do is be able to help. Um, be, and a lot of people get there and a lot of the um, kaupapa get there on 
goodwill on two years of um, fundraising. So what it will do so is So do you fund the different raw poo to travel there, they, right? they fund them themselves and there's a little bit of... But is that here. what your funding would go to? Our, our funding would go towards the entity and funding towards the regions as well. So there's actually able to be an and-and approach. And I think that's really critical is that we recognise that there's a, a national outwards and a regional inwards um, view on this policy. You talked about the previous iteration of Te Pāti Māori and I want to reflect on that whilst also reflecting on the events of this week. So let's start off with national. The last time we spoke, you effectively ruled out working with national. Of course, national is opposed to co-governance. National says it will scrap the Māori Health Authority. Has anything changed? Well, I, I think the question has to be, has anything changed from them as far as the right. Tiriti-centric Aotearoa? We would struggle, and you've just, we've just discussed um, our policies. There's a heck of a lot more behind that. But there is um, no way that we would be able to be in um, a relationship with anyone that's opposed to any of the policies and that are pretty much want to do, undo every policy that advances Māori. If you're in a position to support a future Labour-led government, what are your absolute priorities? I, I think you're asking, um, have we got to a stage where we've talked about bottom lines? I, you know, it's a long time between now and October the 14th, and what we have seen is a real backpedalling between the um, two large parties on whether they are this or are that. So it's really too soon for us to identify um, what it is that some of them stand for. You know, we've got... Um, there's some simple things if you were to look at us. Our members' bills uh, are, are there, they're out there for everyone to see, and that we've always supported, um, that we would like to see that in relationships. I think there would need to be a lot of discussion on what we have in common, and I think you um, alluded to the fact what would need to be bottom lines. It would be about values and commitment to a Tiriti-centric Aotearoa, mm. and we've always said that. Would you like to be a minister? Not really, not particularly, no. I didn't come in here to be a career politician. I came in here to, um, as you know, get seabed mining um, banned and um, represent our communities, but to affect change long-term for our future generations. What do you think would be the most effective way for Te Pāti Māori in the future to achieve the legislative changes it wants? It would be to um, do what we've been doing so far, which is to um, stay true, stay pono to our kaupapa, um, to grow our movement and our support, uh, to make sure we stay aligned with that support and then be able to leverage and discuss. So how do you leverage? How do you leverage? Be. Just explain well, to me what it means. I think the leverage that we have so far, um, which is probably evident in the polls, we haven't made a choice of who we would go for, and deliberately, because we may not go into relationships like have been done in the past, or which is what would be What would be preferable to that, then? I, I think what would be preferable is um, what we determine um, on October the 15th. Don't, and you guess, us, don't your supporters deserve to know what you're actually uh, going to uh, do the, here? The supporters and those that we talk to and that we wānanga with and the um, 300,000 that follow us mm. um, are really aware of how we think and what we do because, I guess, again, that's the difference, is they don't just see us in Parliament, in the House, and, and that's the only time they see us. We engage with them. You would have seen a huge influx we had around us at Matatini. But I think it's really important that we don't try and say, hey, we're going to go with this one and that one, that we actually hold pono to our, our values and our kaupapa, and that we leverage, and again, there's a word power or influence, um, as we think is best. And it may be in a relationship. It doesn't mean we have to be ministers. It doesn't mean we, we may just agree to this aspect. But those are... Um, maturing relationships that, and discussions that we have um, on October the 15th. I, I understand that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even specifically asking mm. who you're going to go mm, with. Mm. I'm more interested in whether Te Pāti Māori thinks it would be more effective to, say, sit on the crossbenches 
than enter any sort of formal coalition or confidence supply. Well, we're the only party in, and the only real opposition in Parliament because we're the only ones that aren't trialling out to be in government. And that's been effective. Mm. Who would have thought a party of two would have um, one of its co-leaders come out as a 1% preferred Prime Minister? Who would have thought a but party of two But if you want to make legislative changes, years, that has to change at some I, point. I, I think if we want to make consecutive uh, legislative change, sorry, and achieve an Aotearoa hope, that requires us to be really innovative and make sure that we're smart in what we do next. That's what we've done in a really disciplined and a really um, Māori organic way in the last two years, and that's what we'll continue to do. Debbie Nārewa Packer. Coming up on Q&A, why earn a degree when we've got chat GPT? We ask how artificial intelligence could change our education system. Hawkey Mai, welcome back. Anyone who's ever watched an episode of Grand Designs know there is a pretty predictable story arc. So at the start of the episode, people building a house are asked how much it'll cost, and almost always they are wildly optimistic. Even with contingencies, by the end of the episode, more often than not, the project is over time and over budget. But why does the same thing happen with so many big infrastructure projects? Auckland's Central Rail Link makes for an impressive engineering feat. But big projects sometimes come with big issues. A delay on top of a delay on top of a delay. With a cost blowout on top of a cost blowout to match. The total cost for the City Rail Link has gone from $3.4 billion to $4.4 billion to $5.5 billion. And that isn't even the final bill. Still, it's hardly unique. In the rich history of the Clyde Dam, the cost for which blew out by almost 50%, New Zealand's infrastructure projects often run tens or hundreds of millions of dollars over budget. Transmission Gully went from $850 million to an estimated $1.25 billion. The projected cost of Christchurch's Tekaha Stadium has already gone up $150 million. Dunedin's covered stadium was 36 million more than originally budgeted, while the city's new hospital has received an extra $110 million, and even with that injection, it'll have fewer beds and operating theatres than the original plan. The latest this week, the Lake Onslow pumped hydro scheme, which the government estimates will cost almost $16 billion, almost four times its original cost. So why is it? Why, with all the resources and expertise available in commissioning large-scale infrastructure projects, do the final costs routinely exceed the initial forecasts? In the wake of this year's storms, accurate cost estimates are critical in making the best decisions about which infrastructure projects we prioritise. Ross Copland is the CEO of Te Waihanga, the Infrastructure Commission, and he's live for us at the Langlands Hotel in Invercargill this morning. Kia ora, Ross. Why is it so hard to accurately estimate the cost of the big infrastructure? Yeah, kia ora, Jack. Well, there's a huge amount of data that project teams need to be able to collect before they start compiling a project cost estimate. And one of the challenges we have with big projects is often announcements of these projects run ahead of the business case or design. So these projects are committed to early and often engineers haven't actually had the chance to carry out their geotechnical conditions assessment 
look at the, the market costs. And then there's a whole lot of other factors that might change during the duration of the, these projects. They can often be very long, you know, 10 years plus. And over that period of time, a lot of significant policy changes can occur. Uh, labour market conditions can change. Foreign exchange rates can change. And all of these things can have a really material impact on project costs. In December, uh, Tewai Hunger released a report which benchmarked the cost of New Zealand infrastructure projects against infrastructure in other countries. Uh, for big complex projects, projects in New Zealand ended up costing more than in the US and in Europe. As you mentioned, our geology was cited as an issue, our relative isolation was cited as an issue, and a relative lack of expertise in New Zealand was cited as an issue. But are companies who tender for these contracts actually being honest about the ultimate cost of this infrastructure? Yeah, well, they're tendering, I guess, with the information they have available at the time. And the challenge for these contractors or companies is when project scope expands, when uh, changes are made in the design because the early information wasn't available to them, for example, or when they have quite adversarial contracting arrangements uh, that really force each party back into their corner. So the client and the contractor are sort of um, firing shots at 50 paces rather than working collaboratively to resolve the inevitable challenges that come up on these projects. They are really complex. And what we need in, in these mega projects or very large delivery structures is collaborative working arrangements where contractors and clients get alongside each other to look at scope, to iterate effectively, to move quickly where they need to, or to pause and actually take the time to understand a little bit more about the risk and quantify some of that before they make a decision or commit. There is a really interesting study cited in that report from December of last year, and you referenced it just before. It found um, that 80% of infrastructure projects with cost blowouts were ones that were announced before a detailed business case had been commissioned or completed. And I suppose that Lake Onslow from this week would fit into that category. But there is a real tension there, is there not? Because politicians are incentivised to announce big plans and to progress their vision. And how should we think about that tension? Because often they feel like they need to do that before a business case is completed. That's right. So what we'd say uh, from the international literature here, there's a great paper that the University College in London put out, and they really sort of broke down the performance of mega projects internationally across some areas. Firstly, stakeholders, you know, projects that struggle either haven't managed their stakeholder relationships well or they've had a lack of transparency. Decision-making is a big one, and you referenced you know, the early announcement of projects. In Australia, we've seen that's a huge percentage of the overall cost overrun on projects, something like 80% of projects uh, or total cost overruns on projects that were announced early. I mean, Lake Onslow was actually one where we initially were a little bit concerned about the announcement, but then really pleased to see the business case process examining a full range of options. And that's exactly what we'd like to see more of, is a really detailed options analysis that politicians are really clear that they're announcing a sort of a problem definition and then handing that over to a delivery team or a project team who will investigate all of the different options, including non-built solutions. You know, New Zealand uh, has tended to rely on supply-side solutions a lot. And in the infrastructure strategy, we actually investigate the option to better use our existing infrastructure through whether it's pricing, through sort of incentive mechanisms or market design. There are a range of options which mean we don't always have to build something to solve an infrastructure problem. When we are building something, and it's a complex piece of infrastructure, often the build is a multi-year project, 
So what responsibility do politicians bear when it comes to getting accurate cost estimates? Yeah, well, politicians have a, a really important role to play. They obviously set the policy context and the environment that provides either certainty or uncertainty to the project team. You know, we've, we've got resource management reform underway here in New Zealand right now, and this is one example of a policy area that has huge implications for infrastructure projects. If politicians want consistent uh, certainty in the project estimates and the cost forecasts for projects and infrastructure going forward, we have to enable infrastructure through our resource consenting system. We have to say it is actually permitted and there's going to be some trade-offs, but those trade-offs are worth it. You know, often we see decisions coming back to project teams for major consenting. There was one actually last week or the week before which had 126 pages of conditions for that project team to comply with. Mm. That adds cost, it adds complexity, and it adds a lot of uncertainty to the people trying to estimate the cost of that eventual build. And, and that's something that we really have to address when we're, when we're designing good policy. Well, that's right. Your report this week says that unless we can actually streamline some of those consenting issues, ultimately it's going to cost us billions of dollars over the next few decades. As we go about um, considering the infrastructure deficit and responding to this year's storms as we rebuild the damaged infrastructure in parts of uh, the North Island, what should be the absolute priority in getting accurate cost estimates? Yeah, well, we, we would advocate, based on the literature, this sort of idea of uh, think slow, act fast, which is you've got to do your due diligence at the start. You have to do appropriate and adequate design work. You have to understand what level of service you're actually targeting with your rebuild. If we think about the regions that have been damaged across the east coast of the North Island, as an example, there is not a conclusive story yet about exactly what level we should rebuild back to. Uh, and that work needs to be done. It's super important that the designers don't rush into designing a replacement asset that's likely to be impacted in exactly the same way as the previous asset. So all of these, these sort of factors will add up to scope. Once we have a clar clarity on scope, we can start looking at delivery models uh, that might accelerate the deployment of that. We published some advice at the start of COVID about how to deploy projects quickly. Uh, and that's going to be very useful here. We have got a good track record of doing this. In Kaikoura Rebuild, we spent $1.2 billion uh, in one year, one month and one day. And that included the consenting, it included the design, it included community engagement. And I think by all accounts, a tremendously successful project. So it is possible to do this well, uh, but we do need to learn and reflect on some lessons from the past. And we've got to get that information right at the outset. Really appreciate your expertise. Thanks so much. That is Ross Copland, who is the CEO of Te Waihanga, the Infrastructure Commission. If you want to contact Q&A, please call it on my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Coming up, how might artificial intelligence impact our education system? One expert says New Zealand just isn't ready. The machines are getting smarter, and it's happening faster than we realise. That's the message of a New Zealand expert on artificial intelligence systems who's urging our leaders to prepare for radical change. Fina Owen reports. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Yes, it's obligatory to begin a dive into the world of AI with scary reminders of where it could all end up.
In a basic form, AI is already here with things like Google and our algorithmic feeds, but the arrival of the chatbots, language processing software, marks the real start of the AI revolution. Change is going to come and it's going to happen really fast. Over the last few decades, computer scientist Dr Simon McCallum from the Victoria University of Wellington has tracked the advent of AI. It's that rate of change and one of the things that we're seeing is that because the AI is good at programming, good at doing computer science, people are using the AI to help build the next AI. It is just going to continue accelerating and so much is happening all over the world. In November last year, when a tech lab OpenAI released its AI software, ChatGPT, it had a million users in five days. It's able to understand human language as it's spoken and written. It's able to write reports and essays. So if I ask ChatGPT to write me a speech essay about New Zealand society, within seconds I get back a lot of cliches, but the cultural nuances are interesting. It references diversity, inclusiveness, and they've even used a few Māori proverbs in te reo. GPT-4 is a breakthrough in problem-solving capabilities. GPT-4, released a few days ago, has more reasoning ability, can read and analyse masses of text and interpret images. The tools are presenting schools and particularly universities with a challenge. So is that going to discredit university qualifications? Oh, we're terrified of that. Um, of course you we're are? terrified of that. Oh, yeah. So, um, it's one of the academic integrity discussions is what do our degrees mean if we can't verify the person graduating actually have the skills that we use to guarantee. And that's why we're looking at, you know, do we have to go to an Oxbridge model of having a large oral exam at the end of your degree and you just can't graduate until you can demonstrate your understanding of the entire three-year curriculum. The methods we've developed to continuously improve GPT-4 will help us as we work towards AI systems that will empower us all. Unfortunately, the AI is developing so quickly that none of the detection tools are likely to be able to catch up. But Victoria University of Wellington is confident it can preserve its integrity with the arrival of the chatbots. It's set up an AI task force. Where we get academics from all over the university to come together and discuss the impact AI is having on society, on the workplace, on journalism, politics, education. Ah, politics. AI's potential role is boundless, with deep fake, image manipulation and voice overlays as demonstrated over this actor's speech to the UN. But as a concerned citizen, one of the 400,000 people who marched in the streets of New York on Sunday, and the billions of others around the world who want to solve our climate crisis, there is a, a lot of discussion about the amount of misinformation and disinformation that can be produced very, very quickly. Once you start distrusting what you see and you hear, you then lose connection to reality because what does any of it mean? And you never know when someone's lying or whether it is them or not them. And so there is going to be a large amount of, of misinformation and uh, disinformation that the AIs will help with. Uh, 
there isn't a very good way of dealing with that. We don't have a good way of dealing with it. Can you wave your hands? Of course. Will the robots or these new AI tools speed up the predicted AI takeover of many of our jobs? It's going to put a lot of people in a perilous situation. It's going to change what we think of as clever. People who have spent years gaining a skill will suddenly have that skill devalued. It will suddenly disappear. So there's going to be a lot of pain. Dolly 2 is a new AI system from OpenAI that can take simple text descriptions like a koala dunking a basketball and turn them into photorealistic images that have never existed before. But Simon McCallum wants us to see the positives too. AI could free up more people to do the jobs that demand the authentic human connection. And he believes the new tools will be a leveller, helping English second language learners and people with learning difficulties. I've used it with my dyslexic son to help him understand things by simplifying things and turning his poor sentence structure and poor spelling through the AI into exactly what he wanted to say. So I can see those opportunities. We have to accept that we won't know what the future is and work together to use the tools to achieve common goals rather than start fighting each other. And and keep the AI in control. We, okay, we don't let the robots win, do human we? Human in the loop. Human, human in, in the loop. Human in the loop. We've got to keep a human in the loop. Fina Owen with that fascinating report. After the break on Q&A, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, we ask one of NASA's top bosses if it's actually good for humanity to have billionaires competing in space. Okimaiti, we welcome back. A year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, one of NASA's top bosses insists cooperation between American and Russian space agencies should continue. NASA's Deputy Administrator, Colonel Pam Melroy, visited officials at the New Zealand Space Agency this week. And I asked the retired astronaut how the war in Ukraine is affecting cooperation at the International Space Station. Well, it's quite interesting. We have a long history with Russia, going all the way back to the Apollo-Soyuz, uh, the two spacecraft meeting in space in 1975 at the height of the Cold War. And it was a great demonstration of how science and exploration and civil space can be a, a place to cooperate that really transcends the geopolitical, because it's really a global enterprise. And so that relationship has grown through the years. And indeed, there are very serious tensions, um, obviously a, a global concern about Russia's uh, unwarranted invasion of the Ukraine uh, that we are very—we uh, uh, condemn in no uncertain terms. At the same time, we have cosmonauts and astronauts working together on the International Space Station to do science and their lives depend on each other. And so that relationship between the cosmonauts and the astronauts, and also between NASA and Roscosmos on the ground is very professional. And uh, we're very clear on what we're trying to do together. And that, that's extraordinary, actually, to have a place where you can 
show that there is hope for cooperation. So, so cooperation continues, but my question is, is should it? Should uh, the, the interests of space exploration and science and the International Space Station be put ahead of the concerns of people on the ground in Ukraine right now? You, I mean, your president has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Absolutely uh, a war criminal, without a doubt. But it's important to understand when you're engaging that this is of strategic importance to both countries. In fact, space is of strategic importance to all of humanity. The science that we are learning is the seed corn of the future. And the science that we're doing on the space station cannot be done here on Earth and provides us insights that will actually give us the technical and science capabilities for the future. In addition to that, space is a growing economic capability mm -hmm. across the world. And so the science research and the technical research that we're doing on the sp space station is spinning off into daily benefits for people, in particularly the area of medical science and pharmaceuticals and manufacturing. It's, it's really critically important. It was a major investment. And I'd like to point out, it's not just Russia and the U.S. Mm -hmm. We have multiple international par partners, uh, the European Space Agency, Japan, Canada. Uh, we're, we're very uh, clear on the fact that this is a very, very uh, important capability to all of us. It is worthwhile to humanity to keep that door open and to do that. Do you think, if you were not in a position where cooperation was feasible, that Russia would pursue more of a militaristic policy in space? It's quite possible. I can't really speculate on that, not really knowing what uh, the internal workings inside Russia. But uh, certainly, that was a part of the consideration in the development of the International Space Station, is that we were putting uh, high-tech scientists and experts in space to work together on a in a very productive way, uh, rather than perhaps doing things that wouldn't be so productive. Mm. The U.S. has declared a moratorium on testing anti-satellite weapons, but there are some other countries. Um, India in 2019 was a prominent example that have pushed ahead with some anti-satellite tests. What do you think the outcome of that will be? Uh, I, I will just reinforce that we are so supportive of Vice President uh, Harris's leadership in this area in the ASAT testing ban. Um, it's shocking and disgraceful. Um, we all know better now not to do destructive testing on orbit. It impacts everything today. It's impacting the space station. Periodically, all of the crew has to huddle in a place that's protected, and then we have to move the space station out of the way, stop and cease all science operations while we do that. Uh, it's a very serious problem. NASA's role in orbital debris and orbital debris management is to provide the modeling and the data analysis around that. We have an orbital debris program office uh, that assesses that. But it, it's something we're in active discussion around the world about the sustainability of low Earth orbit. And, and how much does it concern you that increasingly space technology is being used for military purposes? Well. I think space technology has always been used for communications and remote sensing and those kinds of things. That's been around for decades. There's really nothing new about it. Uh, I think what's really happening is there's a lot more commercial capabilities. That's really the revolution in what's happening. And uh, that, that is enabling all kinds of interesting businesses. In fact, we're using commercial data uh, for climate. 
studies. Uh, NASA is a climate agency. We have a large Earth science portfolio, um, more than 26 satellites on orbit looking at the Earth. Most of the data that's used for decision-making around climate comes from space because it gives that global perspective. So uh, we think that is extremely important to continue to invest in. The reason I ask about um, concerns about uh, military applications for space technology is that it does have relevance for New Zealand. As you know, Rocket Lab on the Mahia Peninsula has made more than a dozen launches, I think now, on behalf of US military or intelligence organizations. So in the event of the US being involved in a greater power war in the future, is there a concern for countries like New Zealand that they have opened themselves up as potential targets because of their involvement? Well, I think uh, New Zealand has its own process in place to review the payloads uh, and make sure that they're aligned with the interests of the company. I can't, or the country. I can't, I can't comment on that process. It really uh, belongs to New Zealand. But I know that they scrutinize each of those payloads very clearly to make sure that they are aligned with the policy and the interests of the country, and we fully support that. I think it's, uh, it's as, as somebody who's been pursuing science and technology for decades, um, there are so many uh, technologies that are worth exploring and innovating, and commercial companies like Rocket Lab allow us to actually test and innovate and try new technologies and capabilities in space that have nothing to do with weapons. I want to ask you about uh, some of those commercial possibilities in a moment. But I wonder, what do you see as NASA's role in the fight against climate change? What is NASA's, NASA's potential? Well, NASA already is a key leader in uh, studying climate. That's our role. Really, you cannot scale information about the Earth terrestrially. You really have to look at the Earth as a full system. Speaking as someone who's been to space and seen the Earth from space, what happens on one side of the Earth affects what happens the, on every side of the Earth. You see it as a global system. You see how everything plays together. You can only get that perspective from space. We have a large portfolio in climate science, and we're uh, studying the Earth. But more importantly, we're committed to working with our international partners, both to amplify the Earth science that we do by contributions from other countries of satellites and instruments to look at the Earth, but also we share that data freely with everyone. One of the things that's wonderful about working with New Zealand is they share our commitment to open and transparent science data, and that's a very important point of our cooperation. Let's talk about some of the commercial companies involved in space. Are you convinced that private companies and the interests of private companies are aligned with the greater interests of humanity when it comes to space exploration? Jack, that's a wonderful question. People uh, have asked me, hey, with companies you know, uh, doing so much of this exploration, what is the role of the government? And it's actually quite simple. The role of the government is to set a strategy that is in the benefit of humanity, that's in the benefit of our citizens. But when you're talking about space, we're all citizens. We're citizens of Earth. So the benefits for humanity of going to space come from the science that we can learn uniquely from microgravity and going to space. We also develop technical capabilities when we do really hard things. And it is really hard to go to space. Those capabilities spill out into other areas. 
One of my favorite examples is that NASA essentially had to invent software engineering as a discipline in order to achieve Apollo. Mm -hmm. So those spin-offs keep coming, and those capabilities spill out into all, all kinds of other areas. But in addition to that, we also bring inspiration, mm -hmm. and that is the seed corn of the future for our STEM students. When you look at a private company, they may have a different why. Their, their goals may be different. But I will say that when our partnership goals align, and they bring low-cost capability that allows us to do more with less, uh, which is exactly where we are with our commercial partners today, then it's a very powerful combination. You talked about the importance of climate change and combating climate change in the eyes of NASA. But to take a SpaceX uh, launch, for example, I think more than 100 tonnes of carbon emissions are released every time one of those rockets heads into space. And if you scale that, obviously there are concerns about the overall emissions. Is space tourism a responsible goal? Well, I think right now the scale of space is completely dwarfed by every other form of transportation. Its contribution to climate change and emissions is minuscule at the moment. But your point is about what happens if it does it start to scale. Importantly, there are concerns being raised in this area, but I will say that we have to do a lot more research to actually really quantify and characterize that. And we're also doing research into uh, sustainable fuels and other forms of uh, rocket transportation that may be able to make a difference to be more efficient. And in fact, Rocket Lab has been a leader in the sustainable fuel area for space. Elon Musk, mm. good guy. Well, uh, he's certainly a visionary and an entrepreneur. And like I said, uh, really, our partnership is with his company, SpaceX. And when our interests are aligned, uh, and they've been a great partner for us. Uh, they have taken the investments that the government has made in technology and made it more efficient, made it more commercial. And that's something, actually, that private industry is better suited to than, than the government. But we're, we're, we can leverage that for our capabilities. They've enabled so much uh, for us to, to be able to do more efficiently. Is it possible that you might return to space as a tourist one day? Well, that's an interesting idea. Um, it's really magic being in space. It's just wonderful. If I could snap my fingers and go right at this moment, I would in a heartbeat. Obviously, it's not quite that simple. Uh, I do think that it's... Uh, it's exciting to think about more people going into space. As an explorer and as an early you know, explorer in space, as an astronaut, I think we would really benefit by having more people see our Earth from space. We call it the overview effect, that sense that we are all crew members of Spaceship Earth. And I think that that would have a very positive impact on the world to have more people go. That's NASA's Deputy Administrator, Colonel Pam Melroy. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. Hey, Tiara Wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9 a.m. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.